you know, the, the concern isn't, you know, that data is taking us in the wrong direction per se. Uh, it's that if we don't develop and maintain that other lens, um, we're going to be blind to things uh, that quantitative data can't tell us. I don't see a viable replacement for real human expertise uh, when you want to act on you know, quantitative data. Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. In this episode, we tackle a big question about big data. What are its limitations and how do we overcome them? MWI's Captain Jake Moraldi talks to Dr. Nicholas Crowley. Dr. Crowley is a consultant and founder of Frontline Advisory, as well as an MWI non-resident fellow. He makes a persuasive case that while data has enormous value, leveraging that value brings into play an ever-increasing need for human judgment. Far from replacing rigorous human analysis, technology-driven data collection makes that human factor more important than ever. A couple notes before we get started. First, if you're not already following MWI on Twitter or Facebook, check us out there. It's the best way of staying up to date on the commentary, analysis, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're producing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Here's Captain Jake Moraldi and Dr. Nicholas Crowley. Well, Dr. Crowley, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today. Uh, I appreciate you making the trip out here. Um, what I'd like to do off the bat is get a little bit of your background and, and a little bit of an understanding of what your expertise is and how you got into the military analysis, military uh, consulting, yeah. uh, military intelligence field. Sure. So I spent uh, about 10 years out of college um, sort of along the line between academia and intelligence stroke military advisory work. Uh, I spent a few years in D.C., uh, did an M.A. in Middle East Studies over at King's College in London, um, took a job after that, uh, after some time in Syria studying Arabic with uh, the human terrain system in Iraq, uh, spent 2008 in Iraq in Baghdad, uh, and then after that did a, a doctorate back at King's College in London, uh, effectively about the work I'd done with HTS, uh, looking at the Mahdi Army and its campaign and how it uh, evolved over time and, and trying to explain you know, what happened to that militia and how it went. Uh, and after that, um, I did some training work with HTS, uh, with the Brits, um, a bit with um, NATO and across Europe uh, around the utility of, of social science methods to military operations, to intelligence work. This was a period in time um, after the early phase of HTS and in, in sort of the aftermath of the surge when counterinsurgency was very much in focus and there was a lot of talk about you know, the utility of, of academia, of the social sciences, uh, particularly of ethnography, to that kind of work. Um, so there was a lot going on then and on the back of that I went off to work in the private sector. Uh, started my own business and did really a version of what we did with HTS for private companies. So, you know, in the military, you know, HTS was trying to give, you know, two things really. One was an understanding of local detail uh, from an operational standpoint. So if you're there at brigade, battalion, company level, 
trying to get something done in a particular part of the world, what do you need to know about what you see around you every day? How do you make sense of it? How do you interpret its significance? Uh, and then how do you achieve objectives? Um, you know, how do you understand local society? And how do you engage with it? You know, what is that dynamic? Uh, and then beyond that, once you have that local understanding, you can start to look for big picture strategic significance. Uh, so there's a very tactical level, immediate focus, and then you know, once you accumulate that level of knowledge, you can start talking to big picture issues. Um, and that's really what I try to do in the private sector. So if you're a Western business going into the Middle East, going into a, an unfamiliar market, you know, on the one hand, what do your operational people need to know about what they're seeing around them? You know, there's a pretty robust political risk industry and strategic forecasting industry that's going to sell you a macro view of Iraq, Nigeria, Libya. That's useful at an executive level in the private sector. Do we want to go into this market? What are the regulatory issues? What do we have to watch for from security and political risk? Uh, but that kind of report is of pretty marginal utility to the people you send in to run the operations on the ground. They have a different problem set in front of them. Um, so I try to work with operational people to figure out what's happening around you and what do you, how do you make sense of that. Uh, some of that gets into security and risk. Uh, a lot of it gets into labor issues uh, in the private sector. You know, that's your biggest point of contact with local society or the people you hire, whether you're drilling for oil or you're running a mine or you're manufacturing, you're hiring locally. These people come into your organization. You know, how do you manage that? How do you understand the ways in which you're pulling all these local nuances and intricacies socially, culturally, economically, you know, inside the wire, to say it, you know, in, in military speak. Um, so, and then once again, once you develop that level of understanding and you have that insight about how your business is sort of going local, um, there's strategic value in that uh, when you look at your client relationships and, and what's happening in different markets. Uh, so that's where I am now. Uh, that's the, the, the short version. I've been uh, working along those lines for the past five, six years. Um, and, you know, coming now with MWI uh, has been part of kind of reengaging with defense and security work uh, in the intelligence sector. Right. So having just uh, been in your talk here that you gave it at MWI, it strikes me that what you're talking about in terms of what you do in the private sector now where you are focused much more on the, the localities and the specifics of a place or a, a context um, and that a lot of other firms or a lot of the other information out there is very much a macro kind of generalized look at a, a country or a region. Um, to think about that perspective that you have combined with what you talked to us today about about big data and how yeah. generalizing both those two, whether it's yeah. in, a, in a qualitative sense or a quantitative sense, um, how much generalization goes on in that. Can you kind of talk to the the big data piece a little a little bit about how you view the the panacea of, yeah. of big data and intelligence and, and sure. understanding yeah, more I mean, generally? I, sure. I mean, I, big firms in the private sector are much like the military and the U.S. government, and that you you know you're operating on such a scale that you can't take every single thing that happens along the way as a case in and of itself that you're going to dive into in detail. Uh, and there's a, a push toward scalability toward top-down solutions. Uh, you look at the consulting industry and the solutions they offer um, in, from strategy consulting to operations consulting. Um, it's framework-driven. Um, it's, you know, it's valued upon it, its scalability and your ability to solve lots of problems in broadly the same way or with broadly the same methods. 
uh, you know, my work, uh, I don't see it as contradicting that, but it's a, a corrective, it's a, a check against the problems that can come when you take that approach. Because uh, you, you really, again, you can't say that you know, the U.S. Army has to understand um, in a strategic framework every piece of local detail all across Iraq, Afghanistan, the broader Middle East. Uh, you know, just structurally, you can't do that. Um, and you, know, you have to find ways to approach and understand your environment um, more broadly. Uh, and that's when you know, data has an appeal. These big data systems offer the prospect of a standardized, clean, nicely packaged system that pulls in lots of disparate data points. Uh, and you can take algorithms to sort it out on the back end and structure it into categories. Uh, and if you want to go even further, you've got artificial intelli intelligence capabilities making sense of it all, actually doing analysis at a certain level. Uh, and the extent of that technology's maturity is, is sort of arguable in terms of the kinds of problems it can solve. Um, but there's enormous appeal to this, obviously, um, because of what it offers, potentially. Uh, and then the concerns I have um, are, are that, you know, as we look toward these scalable solutions, you, know, you need someone in the room at a high level, you know, in these strategic conversations who has direct contact with that local reality, uh, where it's all well and good to, you know, have theory and, and to lay theory over data sets and start to understand, you know, broad themes and, and important trends. Um, but you need a check in that process, uh, a voice in the room saying, listen, you know, I see what you're saying, I see where this is going, you know, the data set shows correlation in this direction, but actually we need to consider this. Um, and, and I don't see a, a viable replacement for real human expertise uh, when you want to act on, you know, quantitative data. Uh, you need someone that can take calls from correlation. And that was, you know, a big point in the talk. You know. What can data show you? Uh, when you take a complex human environment, whether it's a battlefield or it's a labor market or it's, you know, a consumer marketplace, there are all these different things happening. If you want to turn that into quantitative data points, um, you're stripping away all that context, all the nuance, all the subtlety, and you're representing these dynamic interactions and, and, and happenings as you know, discrete objects, ones and zeros, colors, numbers, however your, your metrics are working. Um, when you do that, you're cutting away its explanatory power. You know, it's reductionist. Uh, and that creates, I, I see, you know, structural limitations in what you can do with that data. Um, you know, at a certain point, no matter how much data you have, you're not going to be able to distinguish correlation from cause unless you know where to look and how to interpret that data. Um, and I don't see technology getting around that anytime soon. Um, and the concern is, you know, from a commander standpoint, from an executive standpoint, you know, you're being, you know, pushed all this data. You know, all this data is coming toward you and it's being sold to you as a way to understand the world around you. And it has enormous utility, obviously, to get these different points across the spectrum. Um, but ascribing meaning to that data and, and patterns behind it is a, a step beyond, I think, what the data itself allows. Uh, and you need human agency. You, know, you need people involved uh, who really know not just how to use the technology, um, but how to understand the way that technology shapes our vision of what's happening around us um, and, and how to get around the, or compensate, I guess, for some of its limitations. 
So I have two questions that, that kind of flow out of that. And the, the one I'll ask, I think, is, or at least I imagine, is the, the technologist's rebuttal to that, which yeah. is the idea that if I have a large enough data set across geographic location or cultural context or whatever variable you want to throw in there, if I have enough data, the model can account for those sorts of things. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Where does the the human element or the human analysis element come in? If I have yeah. a data set that that is able to represent the breadth of human experience, right? So you have the comprehensive system of everything. Exactly. You pull all the data in. There you go. And I think what you see when that happens is this get to, to step take a step back. You know, the, the standard procedure, as happens now with big data, is we're going to pull it all in. And then after the fact, we'll sort it with algorithms, we'll process it with AI, we'll do these different things in the back end. But if you pull in everything all at once, and you, you process it, and you do these different things, you're still going to find all these different correlations. Uh, and you still, again, I still don't think you can see calls from correlation. Uh, in the talk, we gave the example of an insurance company in the private sector, where for them, in, in their decision making, you know, correlation is good enough, effectively. If you can find a strong long-term correlation between the pattern of behavior and an outcome in terms of health, mortality, uh, medical treatment costs, you can price that risk. It doesn't matter if it's actually causal. The insurance company isn't trying to cure the disease. Uh, they're just trying to price the risk. Um, so again, even if the, the A doesn't really connect to B, A and B move in tandem, that's good enough. And that's enormously valuable. Uh, and that's something that, again, when you pull in these huge data sets, a human analyst probably couldn't do or might never see. Um, so there's a, enormous utility in this. Um, but, you know, my view is that you need more front-end direction and that, you know, a high-caliber, you know, high-spec technology platform requires an equally high-spec user who knows not just how to use it, um, but why they're using it uh, and how to direct it. And, and I think that a lot more when you look at how the intelligence community structures itself to use these technologies, um, you need, again, a, a better, not a less, a more sophisticated, not a less sophisticated user who knows how to build, you know, very, you know, rigorous research plans that become, you know, technologically driven collection plans to really focus what we're looking for, what we're collecting on. Uh, I think the, the, the ideal intelligence analyst of you know the next generation isn't someone sorting through all of the data it's who, who knows where to look and then start applying these filters and then start validating hypotheses and then starting to look you know because if you have that structure of, of knowledge about time and place you know you're looking into Libya you're looking into wherever you're looking you have a strong grounding in history and what's happening on the ground um, the subtleties of how things work in that context um, you're an awesome end user of these kinds of technologies. But if you don't have that, how are you, you know, again, all these correlations come out at you. How do you make sense of them? Uh, and looking at the near term, you know, thinking about the, the talk from earlier, um, I, I think there are real dangers in developing the technology faster than we train the people to use it. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, the opportunity for manipulation. Uh, if you have politically driven demands for a certain intelligence assessment to be made, and you have these massive data sets, you're going to find evidence if you look back at that. It's, it's there. Uh, it may not be the right answer to the right question, but you can make a very compelling case in a briefing saying, listen, 
we use cutting edge technology to go through terabytes of data and we found these patterns and it supports this conclusion you know never mind that you reverse engineered it and never mind that you really know what's happening on the ground um, that briefing is probably more compelling to a decision maker in politics uh, than the brief from a person who spent a long time studying this place and has instinctive judgments uh, and really knows the facts on the ground but is just a person with a view um, they're going to lose that argument, I think, uh, and that's a dangerous thing. Uh, and it also, I think, having these data sets enables the illusion of deep understanding. So say you know something about the subject, you've spent some time on the ground, you're pulling in these big data sets, um, it can impart a false confidence uh, that is no replacement uh, for really getting that deep human knowledge of what's going on. Um, so I think, again, the, the way forward is to align the two and get you know, the right end user with the right technology, you know, directing it to a purpose. Uh, and I, I don't doubt that we can get there, uh, but in the near term, um, you know, my, my view or my, my feeling is that you know, the implementation of technology is going to outstrip you know, the development of people, uh, of the people using that technology. Uh, and it could do us, I think, a real disservice in terms of how we understand the world and how the intelligence cycle functions. With that in mind, given your experience having, having worked with the Department of Defense and the, the military uh, and the Army specifically, where do, you, where do you see the preference for, how do you explain the preference for data as the, the driver of decision making, right? Yeah. Because the idea is that all of the potential issues with qualitative processing, human processing, human analysis, are potentially just as present in the model that is built or the way that data is interpreted through algorithms. Mm -hmm. The algorithm is not a magic sort of thing, as right. far as I can tell. Someone made it. Yeah. Uh, somebody, a human being created it, right? So where, where does that preference come from? Where does that the the feeling among military leaders mm -hmm. that that's a more valid sort of analysis yeah. than a human analysis of the situation. Two things come to mind. One is that you know, you're hitting on something that you know is actually reasonably profound. Is that we, we take these quantitative data points as being clean and crisp and nice and, and manageable and, and simple and objective, um, and that's why we like them. That's why the army likes them. Um, they're devoid of, of nuance and ambiguity. You know, the data says this, and when you quantify things, you find clear trends. There's no ambiguity in the data because it says what it says. You know, that explains the preference. Uh, but beneath that is there's this sort of religious reverence for the fidelity of data, um, when in fact a lot of it isn't that great. Uh, look at the SIGAC data uh, from you know the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know what quality and depth of reporting went into that, how much of it was reported, what were the methods that were followed, the procedures that were followed. And you dig into that, whether you're on the inside of the system or from a WikiLeaks kind of thing, it's all over the place. Um, you know, you're seeing certain levels of reporting in different sectors and different areas. That doesn't necessarily tell you the story of what's really happening in those places. Um, never mind, and that even put aside the fact that, you know, from a thousand miles away, without a line into ground truth, you can't tell if a rise in violent activity indicates a growing problem, a failed strategy, 
or success actually, and you have an insurgency and it's death throes. Um, so even when the pattern is clear and the data is good, you, you don't necessarily know what you're seeing unless you're plugged into reality, you know, that, that ground truth. Um, and that's what I think has to remain uh, as an input, you know, to the intelligence cycle. That you know, we can't let data overwhelm effectively, you know, the, the human judgments that happen, the human intuition that goes into how we understand where we are. Uh, the data is an enormously powerful tool, um, but I think it only reaches its full utility in the hands of uh, an equally high-end user. So the question was asked in your in your talk earlier, and I think it's an important question because this concept of it has been floating around for a while. The idea that at some point artificial intelligence or, or the analytics that are being used will hit will reach a point where they can make informed decisions. I guess the best way to describe it, or, or informed analysis of causation, for example. Yeah. Um, is that something that in, in your work you think is a good thing or is that something that maybe we are we're shortchanging ourselves <laughs> a little bit and the, the capabilities that we as human beings possess? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is you're getting into kind of science fiction, end of the world stuff. Uh, I mean, the day that robots are making informed decisions about the course of events in the battlefield and making operational judgments, we become irrelevant and probably viewed as, as part of the problem. Uh, you get into, you know, they're all, pick your movie, right? They all end badly. Uh, in the near term, you know, I, I talked about this a bit earlier, that, you know, I don't think the Army structurally um, is that eager to invest in people. Uh, and I'll, I'll backtrack that a little bit, but, you know, technology is hugely appealing because it's reliable, it's scalable, it's there and it is what it is. Um, you plug in a certain technology, you adopt a certain platform, and it will reliably do what it does, provided that it works. Uh, people aren't quite like that. Uh, and you know, the Army as a, an institution, um, doctrinally and organizationally, uh, I saw kind of, it scales itself a bit to the lowest common denominator. Uh, and there's good reason for that, right? When you're building the manual to fix a truck, it has to be done in a certain way that anyone can do it. Fine, there's no problem with that. Uh, but when you look at the intelligence function, uh, I think the Army can and should ask more of its people. You know, I remember seeing a ton of wasted intellectual curiosity and intellectual firepower in the officer corps, in the enlisted ranks, people who wanted to understand where they were and what was going on, but who had no structural opportunity to do that. Uh, there was no outlet for that intellectual curiosity, uh, and there were no inputs into their day-to-day that answered their questions. And that was one of the more useful things that the human terrain system did um, in terms of the day-to-day -day functioning of the military. See, it wasn't always about informing high-level decision-making, uh, but it was more sitting around at the end of the day talking to soldiers and explaining what was going on, and not in a condescending way, but in terms of having spent a long period of time with a job to dig into the, the details of that company AO um, you know, soldiers had other jobs. They were doing other things. You know, we spent our time digging into this, and you had value to add. Um, you know, I think that there's an opportunity, you know, for the military structurally um, to ask more of its people um, in these more intellectual functions, and they'll get an enormous return on that. 
And there are a lot of people, you know, dying to do more, to think differently. Um, and I think it's a resource that's uh, that's untapped. So you talked a little a little while back, and I think it is kind of your main your main thesis uh, with your talk today is the idea that qualitative assessment, human assessment of intelligence, has flaws in it, okay. and that there is data that can maybe mitigate some of or, or alleviate some of the problems that humans have, and data has problems that humans can help help solve. Up to the point, up to this point in the conversation, we've sort of been talking at a level that, at least in my own head, I kind of view as a almost strategic level problem when we're talking about analysis. How does this this give and take between the the human being doing qualitative analysis and data play out at a at a lower level? You mentioned sort of the soldier level when you were doing HTS. How does this play out in in the modern day at a company platoon? squad level yeah I mean it's a question I guess in terms of the tasks that you're asked to perform at that level um, you're you know separated you know by distance and seniority from high-level decisions and you're being told to go out and implement um, you know the inputs from data I think are largely you're, you're sucking them up from a collection standpoint uh, you're a sensor on the battlefield when you're at that level uh, and you're feeding them into the, the intelligence cycle to the, the broader systems of the army or the military. Um, and in my experience, what I saw, you know, the analysis is performed largely elsewhere and it gets kicked back down to you. Um, so you know, when you look at the quantitative tools, you know, you're seeing the results of your data harvesting, which has value, um, which informs what you do and how you do it. Um, I think the, the qualitative insight sits more down at that, that tactical level. It's one of the things we talked about in the talk is that the structures don't exist, uh, at least not as, as in a perfect solution to capture you know, long-form qualitative insight into what's happening in a company AO. You can't push that into the intelligence cycle and get it bred and, and, and absorbed because how do you scale that? How does a division commander read 600 you know, briefs on a daily basis about what's happening in the company AOs and the rest? It doesn't work. Um, but if you collect that insight at the local level, you know, at the company level, at the platoon level, and you have that detailed understanding of where you're operating, you know, I think that's what grounds you in terms of how you understand where you are. Uh, and the data points come in and they can show trends changing and things changing. Um, but I think the, the qualitative piece, that initial assessment, uh, when you talk about using things like ethnography, when you use human intelligence, well, when you really get the lay of the land, of you know, the human terrain is the, the Army's phrase of where you are, you know, that's that picture that stays with you and that's your frame of reference to interpret what you see as events play out and as new data points come in, um, as the quantitative picture changes, um, you situate that knowledge and, and that change uh, in your frame of reference, which is, I think, inherently qualitative um, to get that level of detail. So I'm curious, again, looking at us being here at West Point, with the idea that these cadets will very shortly be out in, in the Army doing you know, the platoon leader thing or, or the junior officer thing. And I'm curious how you view just that that you were talking about, yeah. the, the interpersonal, cultural, on-the-ground understanding and, and how a leader or a platoon leader or company commander develops that after spending time in their, their area of operations. Yeah how that jibes with a, a culture, both organizationally and, and larger, that 
is so data focused right. that a, a platoon leader who takes a platoon tomorrow may have a very different understanding than about what data, what information he or she should be gathering as opposed to someone 20 years ago, right. what that, what the impact of that is on their ability to do the qualitative uh, a little bit, you know, the more social science right. type analysis that they probably need to. Yeah, yeah I think the, the, the tough answer is they have to do both. Uh, I mean, I think the, the conversation that gets had about technology is that it's meant to sort of alleviate human suffering in terms of having to do this kind of analysis and dig through it yourself. Um, it could be we come to a day where we get there, uh, when the machines take over and we're all you know, slaves to the machine. But uh, until that happens, uh, you need to have you know, an eye on each, you know, one lens in each direction, where you're involved in this quantitative system, you're pulling in quantitative data, feeding that cycle. Um, but you also have to be able to situate that because you, the machine can't do it for you yet. Um, so you need to be able to have the, the data scientist's view of what you're pulling in uh, on the quantitative side and also the ethnographer's view of where we are. Uh, you don't have to even call it the ethnographer's view. It can be the intelligence officer, the human intelligence officer's view uh, with a tinge of, of ethnographic skills uh, thrown into that mix. Um, and I don't think it's a, a particularly onerous demand uh, to make of somebody. And I don't think it's a particularly challenging skill set to impart. Um, again, the, the tech skill set is, I think, a much harder one to develop, uh, to develop these technologies and capabilities. Uh, and to use these technologies and capabilities, um, again, that's getting easier and easier, I think. Um, but on the qualitative side, it's, it's a mind state. And it's you know, fairly straightforward methodological practices, structural practices that are very close to how intelligence work happens. Um, this isn't something new and alien. Uh, you know, the, the academia likes to sort of mystify itself and create these walls around what ethnography is. Uh, it doesn't have to be the case. Um, you, know, you, you can use these things in, in rigorous and, and effective ways um, that deliver value. Uh, to an end user like a platoon leader, uh, like a company commander. Um, so, you know, the, the concern isn't, you know, that data is taking us in the wrong direction per se. Uh, it's that if we don't develop and maintain that other lens, um, we're going to be blind to things uh, that quantitative data can't tell us uh, by virtue of its reductiveness and by virtue of, of what it is and that whole cause and correlation distinguishing. So to end out here, what I'd like to ask is, with that in mind, the idea that even junior level leaders are going to need to balance the, the risks and opportunities of both the qualitative and the, and the quantitative understanding of, of how to process information, how does a cadet or junior officer develop that ability to do the balancing, to understand the world in a qualitative way, but also be able to handle yeah. the, the huge amount of data that is constantly coming into them yeah, at all times. And, and that's a, a training and education requirement for the Army, for the military. Um, there isn't a, a workaround for that, I don't think. And it's not, it doesn't have to be an expensive one, it doesn't have to be a monstrously complex one, uh, but it does have to be done. Um, and, and it has to happen, you know, at the intake point, uh, and there has to be training over time, because as technology changes, Again, it's not just a question of learning new technology. It's a question of appreciating how that new technology changes your view of the world. 
uh, and changes how you think about where you are and what you're trying to do. So, you know, there's the, you know, the, the Army and, and its personnel can sort of march toward the future with technology and embracing these tech uh, capabilities. Uh, but you have to have sort of a foot in the past for now um, so that we can use them in the right way and calibrate them and direct them effectively. All right. Well, Dr. Crowley, that's all I have for you. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking to us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. Thanks again.